Hi, I'm Pete Seligman. Welcome to the Next Step Podcast. In this season, we're going to be focusing on search, search funds, entrepreneurship through acquisition, and all things related to that community and that ecosystem, particularly focusing on how can we build the marketplace in Australia and start to encourage more searchers to come to market and get to the point where they can own, operate their own business. In this episode of the Next Step Podcast, I speak to Aaron Odman. He's the CEO of PSS, which is a small business he bought last year, early 2020, that provides software and learning on demand for school students in America um, between K and 12. Aaron spent 15 years in the military as a Marine. He then spent five years working in sales for a startup. He's also done an MBA at Harvard and through all of that experience managed to come to the conclusion that actually the next step for him was to commence a search. He did a self-funded search in late 2019, early 2020, and acquired his business in early 2020, which as we know, was very interesting timing, if not very challenging timing, as the world was dealing with the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's a really interesting conversation, this one, where we dig in a little bit to Aaron's journey to come to search in the first place, where he thinks the attributes that he had and the aspirations he had were a good fit for the model, a little bit about his experience during the search process, and then some of the lessons he's learned during the first 18 or 19 months in the hot seat running the business that he acquired. It's a really great conversation. I enjoyed speaking to Aaron and I look forward to catching up with him again in another 12 months when his business continues to grow and, and even starts to launch some new products. I hope you enjoy it. Good morning, Aaron, or good afternoon for you, I guess, given that you're yeah. over the other side of the world at the moment. How are you going today? Doing well. I'm doing well. It's uh, end of the day for us. I know beginning for you. So happy to connect. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank, thanks for your time, I'll say, this afternoon. It's great to have you on because... As I was saying before we just got on this call, I think there are lots of people that listen to these podcasts that are really keen to understand what the search journey looks like because they're considering it for themselves. And so speaking to someone like you that's been through almost all of the phases of that process and getting some of those lessons learned and kind of experience straight from the front line is really, really useful. So thanks for your time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested in connecting. I know hearing from people who've done it before, right, who I could relate to and pull some inspiration from was very important to me. So I'm, I'm always happy to, to talk about it and reflect on, on where I am, although I'm just, I'm just in the middle of the journey. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, a lot of people say, you know, the, that operation phase is the biggest chunk, right? So there's still a, a fair way to go for you sure. been for a couple of years. So, so to kick things off, maybe one of the things that a lot of people ask is, is search right for me? And so what I've been trying to do when I speak to, to successful searchers like yourself is try and get a bit of background so that people get an understanding of all the different types of backgrounds of people that end up coming to search. So can you give us a bit of backstory and where you came from and then and then what brought you to search in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in New York, first generation American. I was just lecturing my kids on this. You know, my parents came from Jamaica and kind of brought that entrepreneurial spirit. So I was around it growing up as a kid, but didn't we didn't ever had a word for it. You know, it was just kind of hustling and went to college, ended up going to the military and served for nine years, but did some fairly entrepreneurial things. Still didn't, re, you know, the military doesn't call it that by any stretch, but just kind of being creative and figuring things out in small teams 
was kind of what I grew up doing. And so when I got out of the military, went to business school, I'd established like a kind of a, a pattern of what I wanted to do. I wanted to do things that were kind of scrappier, smaller teams. So that ruled out probably, I think that made me unqualified for a lot of jobs, probably in banking or consulting or, you know, anything in a formal corporation. So I was always drawn to entrepreneurship. And in business school, I took a class just kind of on a whim with two professors who kind of made fun of all of us entrepreneurs for wanting to start the next Facebook or Uber was the big one when I was Uber was, you know, maybe two or three years old, but you could see it was going to be big. So everyone was trying to do the Uber of dog walking or yes. something, that, some kind of derivative. And these professors said, you're trying to start something from scratch. You have no customers. You don't know. There are customers who want your thing. You know, it kind of seemed like guessing. And they said, you know, there are, there are hundreds of thousands of businesses in the U.S. that are already established, have customers and, you know, generate pretty predictable cash flows. And the owners have to transition out, right? Whether they have to retire or for health reasons, or, you know, they're just ready to go on to the next chapter. He said, you guys would all be better off trying to find those businesses and put together a transaction and then operate those businesses. That's much lower risk. You know, it's, it pays well, you know, be you and your family would be quite secure and it'd probably scratch all those itches you all have as entrepreneurs. And so that was the pitch for the class. I took I took all their classes I could take and then just kind of discovered this form of entrepreneurship, which I didn't even know existed, you know, prior to me turning 29, 30, I think mm. at this point. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that when you're in the military, maybe that you might've known it at the time, but definitely looking back, you realize that your approach to most things was entrepreneurial. You know, you always liked working in smaller teams. You liked solving interesting problems and you liked coming up with innovative ideas. It's interesting when I speak to quite a lot of people and, and even myself included, you don't realize it at the time, but you look back and you go, oh yeah, I realized the now that even though I was in a different environment, whether it be military, large corporate or large consulting or whatever, that probably inherently has pretty structured approaches I was still looking for ways to do things differently. And maybe that's where that kind of entrepreneurial spirit was born. I think that's right. Maybe the debate, are you born an entrepreneur? Are you, can you become one? Are they, you know, are they born? Are they made? But yeah, you, when you talk to so many entrepreneurs, you're like, yeah, you kind of were wired differently like me, you know, in a sense where it is, no one thinks of, like the military is big and structured. There's a manual for everything. There's a manual on how to eat lunch, mm. right? But there are those of us that were kind of like, you know, just wired to say, well, you know, if we did it this way, mm. we'd be more efficient. Like we would save, we'd save money or save time or save mm. lives. You know, just because it's written in a book this way doesn't mean, I think entrepreneurs are a bit irreverent, which we don't like hold these manuals up in any holy light. So, so yeah, I think we all were probably drawn to it. But, you know, it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties, probably getting out of the military that I started to like hear a language about it, or I started to seek like, well, I'm getting out of the military. I better figure out what kind of real job I'm going to do. And just thinking deeply. And I encourage young people, young people, middle-aged, mid-career, whatever, Mm. but I encourage them to think about, okay, what, what is going to be the right fit for you? Not what checks the box that, you know, your family expects or Mm. a resume box. Certainly, you have to pay bills, you know, or I do that as a minimum. But what is what opportunity is really going to fit the way you're wired? Because if you can find that, I just think your stress levels are going to be lower. 
you're going to, you're going to be a better person to be around. You're probably going to be healthier. And so, you know, luckily I was encouraged to kind of do that and push towards entrepreneurship. Yeah. So by the time I got in the military, I knew I would, I would go into entrepreneurs one form or another. I kind of, I actually kind of thought it would be startups because that's what's in the news. That's the headline. Oh, the startup and this, you know, the business press is kind of funny in that way. Right. They don't write stories about, you know, the tow truck company Mm, around the corner that, that probably has 6 million in revenue and a million in cash flow. That, that, that for some reason that doesn't make the business press. Yeah. Very much so interested in what is kind of the, the big shiny light, even though there's a lot of kind of successful people and, you know, successful employers of big teams that are at that smaller end of the market. Absolutely. So you said that you were in that process of kind of going through your degree and having these professors that were kind of opening your eyes to this other model. Was it a a sudden change where you said, yes, I've got it. That's where I'm going to go. That's where I'm going to head. Or was there a bit of a discovery process over a period of months where you were speaking to other people, maybe learning from a few other searches? Like, how did you then finally get to the point where you're like, yeah, I'm going to raise, I'm going to go and do a search. It was a discovery period. It was over the course of a semester, but I would say by the end of the semester, I was pretty convinced over three, three and a half months, right? Say, and we, what we would do is we would, we would just look at cases mm. of entrepreneurs. So it wasn't, you know, there's not like textbooks about this kind of thing. So we looked at three cases a week for like 12 weeks. Wow. Yeah. Of entrepreneurs who did it. Most of them were, you know, right out of grad school, probably up to say early to mid forties, you know, they, they were all people. I think we all could relate to. They were very, you know, not only were they believable, but they were right there in the class. They would come Mm. to the, you know, so you could ask them questions. And then I also reached out to other alumni from the business school who were only a year or two out. They would come back to school and talk about where they were. So over the course of that 12 weeks, for me, it just became really obvious that this would scratch every kind of professional creative itch I had. It would be pretty fun. It was on a risk adjusted basis. It was pretty low risk. And by the end of the semester, it made, it made like all the sense in the world that this would be something I would pursue. Now, truth be like two things I would note, and maybe we can get into is one, I didn't, I didn't start my search right after grad school. I did actually go and I said, I'm going to go find a startup a software startup that I wanted more experience in sales. I thought that was kind of coming from the military. You know, I kind of had some insecurities about my, my business, you know, experience and said, let me go be a salesman and carry Mm. a quota. And so I got a job at a very early stage software company, FinTech company. And the reason why I did that is because I wanted to earn enough money to do a a self-funded search. Mm. So I didn't want to necessarily, I didn't want to necessarily raise money for a search. I wanted a bit more control over, over that aspect of it. So although I was very, very convinced I would do a search right after grad school, I went and got a job as a salesman as a startup. So still entrepreneur, I still was scratching that itch. And then, you know, after a few years there, I started my search, a self-funded search and, you know, now we're off to the races. Yeah, great. One of the other questions I had from a search the other day was exactly down that line. He was not necessarily sure that he wanted to start the search immediately. You know, he was thinking maybe in a couple of years time. But then the question was, in those years, what should I do? If I'm going to start in a couple of years time, what are the what are the really important gaps for me to fill 
to make sure that, you know, if I don't have all the skills or don't have all the experience that could be useful, what are those things that I should do? So what's, I mean, absolutely, that's that's a kind of sales frontline kind of experience I think is really powerful because that's always one of the growth parameters for these smaller businesses. Is there anything else now that you're through the other side of that equation that comes to mind that you would suggest to people that aren't thinking they're going to start now, they're going to start, you know, in a year or two or three, what kind of experience, whether that be education or even, you know, in work experience that they should try and seek out? Yeah, that's a great question. For me, yeah, sales is probably top of my list. I'll keep banging that drum for folks who don't have, if you already have, you know, frontline sales or customer success, um, then maybe you move on. I think number two in my list would probably be operations. You know, for a lot of small businesses, there is an operational component. Like, like for our company, you know, we we provide technology to schools, computers, scanners, printers. There's a software element. But for the most part, we receive in machines from our suppliers. We, you know, put our value-add services into it, and then we deliver those machines and install them. So there is an operational, you know, something that has, a, you know, a work-in-progress type component to it. If you don't have any operational experience, that would probably be number two on my list. Those yeah. two things. You know, if you were going to pick up like, a, you know, an educational study hobby on the mm-hmm. educational side, I would recommend accounting. And I only giggle because it's so, you know, it's brutal. And the way most schools teach it, it's very boring because you start with debits and credits. Mm. But that part is less important than you know, then the business application, being able to read financial statements, understanding what activities pull what levers, those are the important the important parts. Yeah, that's really interesting because that third one in particular, I mean, the, the first two are two that I'm definitely the levers that have worked for me and the businesses that I've got involved with and, and what I see from others. You know, that how, how do I grow that top line kind of through sales, marketing and, and outreach and just top line growth because a lot of these businesses have gotten to a point where they've kind of probably plateaued in regards to that revenue so being able to right. start that right. again but then obviously the the other side of that equation is the operational improvement right how, how do you then scale the operations to keep up with that top line in a in a profitable way the accounting one though is a really interesting one that that hasn't really come up a lot in conversations that I've had with people recently but it's so critical i mean i, I did a i'm an engineer originally but i did a finance degree as well in which we did a bit of accounting but not not a full accounting degree but it, just being able to understand the language of accounting i mean even down to, to like you mentioned the debits and credits understanding that when I do this to my business, it has this impact on my accounts or when I do this, it has this impact on my cash or my working capital or this particular type of transaction is important for cash, whereas this one is not important for cash. Just understanding how those three statements interact. You know, you don't need to understand all the technical details and all of the tax implications down to the minutiae. But just being able to speak the language is a, is a massive benefit, I agree. I agree with so much of what you just said. Like it, it, it is, you know, the top line growth is probably going to have plateaued or be very modest. You know, if it were rapidly growing, it probably wouldn't be for sale or we wouldn't be able to afford it. So yeah, the entrepreneur is going to get in there and say, okay, I have energy. I've got fresh legs. What can I do to grow the business? And if you've got sales experience or you have a partner that does, then that part will be exciting. Mm. But you also have to grow the business in a profitable way, right? Because mm. there's a lot of things you can do to 
increase the top line, but really crush margins. So a basic, basic understanding of accounting does that. I think you're exactly right. Most of the minutia, the debits and credits has basically been, software basically does that, right? And you're going to have a bookkeeper, you know, we have an external bookkeeper, you know, that we kind of, that tactical piece of it, Mm. we can put to the side, but yeah, you absolutely have to understand the language of it. And then lastly, I think as, as the CEO or that, you know, the head of, you know, if you're going to be the chief operator there, you've got to understand networking capital Mm. and what are the levers to it. So I've, we had a conversation today. I'm, I'm 18 months in, almost 19 months into operating now. And we're, we, we had a conversation today that it's a recurring theme. You know, there's a certain repair to one of our pruners we keep doing and offering. And our customers take us up on it. And I'm, I'm like, you know, to my team, I'm like, guys, you know, doing this repair is as expensive as us just replace, upgrading them to the next model. They're going to get a better model. You know, it's a better story. It's less effort for us. You know, this opens them up to using different parts, you know, different services we have, but it's been a habit for 26 yeah. years to know yeah. we're going to go in, we're going to do the surgery in this machine yeah. and keep it, you know, but, but the customer doesn't know any better, right? And to me, who's looking at it from certainly both the customer success standpoint, but then you look at it from the accounting standpoint, you're like, guys, this is a slam dunk. Yeah. That, that that part of it comes from understanding uh, the accounting side. Absolutely. And and sometimes that story there also kind of talks to the point that what got you to here might not be what will get you to there. So some of that hustle that they've had, which has been really part of their success in terms of being able to get in and solve customer problems by fixing things, has been fantastic yeah. for their journey in the past. But those things that aren't scalable for the future do need to start to change. And so it doesn't mean that what they were doing, it's such a common conversation, isn't it? Because quite often when you come in and you want to change things like that of the being so foundational for some of these businesses, you don't want to, you definitely don't want to give the impression that what they were doing before was bad. It's just that what they were doing before isn't what we need to be doing to be able to make it to the next phase of what we're doing, right? right? So so let's That's not right. have a debate about right or wrong. Let's just have a kind of conversation about whether or not, you know, about what it's going to take for us from here into the future as opposed to what it was that got us from there to here. Yeah, that's that's exactly the, the the tone, you know, from a leadership standpoint, that's a tone, particularly for you as the searcher now operator, in a lot of ways, you're kind of a new, you know, man or woman on the scene. Mm. You have the least tenure. And so there's definitely there's definitely things, you know, obviously there's a tactful way to do it. You want to, you know, have some observation, mm. kind of go on some of these service calls and kind of walk a mile in everyone's shoes. But yeah, there's definitely that theme of what got you here isn't what's going to what's going to take you there. But particularly if you are going to turn up the growth because, you know, a lot of time what I probably didn't appreciate coming to a small business is growth costs money. Like it costs mm. cash right? yeah. and it's expensive. A lot. Right. It costs a lot of cash. And so yeah. you actually don't, you probably don't want to grow too rapidly, A, mm. but then B, if you are going to put on some growth, you 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 may have to go looking for you, you go looking for capital and most people are like, well, I got to raise money. But sometimes the ways the way to raise money is to make your own operations a bit more efficient. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So on that front, let's switch now to kind of that operating phase. How did you find the business you ended up buying and tell us a bit about that business? Yeah, for sure. As I mentioned, I went to a software startup, actually a firm called Encino, which is based in coastal North Carolina and also has offices uh, in Sydney. 
that's a good growth story for a fintech um, going multinational. But my last year there, I said, you know, guys, I want to start searching for that business, right? It's been a good journey here. You know, I feel confident and comfortable starting my self-funded search as an entrepreneurial company. Everyone was supportive there. So I was essentially searching, you know, nights and weekends, my own time while still carrying a, a sales quota at the company. And there are a number of services. The search that I, I chose to do was basically through through business brokers. Mm. So I didn't do any cold outreach to businesses, you know, trying to drum up kind of top of funnel in that way. I, I went out to business brokers, really basically picked geographies that I wouldn't mind living in, you know, which was, you know, probably a good third of the US we were willing to move to. So we, we thought that was a, a big enough net to cast and started talking to brokers. And there are a number of services in the US that will actually aggregate all business brokers will list all their businesses on their websites. And these services will go and kind of just aggregate all of them and dump them in your your inbox so you can kind of peruse through a bit more efficiently. And honestly, I saw I saw a teaser for a business, you know, that said it sold um, technology to, to schools, K through 12. And I thought that sounded pretty cool. And so I, I, I called the broker. The broker and I, you know, kind of got along. I trusted him. You know, he trusted me. We built up some trust over a few phone calls and meetings. And he introduced me to the seller. The seller of that business, our business is called PSS. And our website is pss.co if you want to mm-hmm. go and check out some of the, some of the cool things we do with, with, with young students. But the, found, the owner, founder of that business was also a veteran. Right. He was 30 years older than me, but had also served. And so he and I kind of got along. Mm. And, you know, that made, that made everything easier was we, we started to build a layer of trust. But when you're going to do a transaction like this, look, I've already done one, but I could tell you, I think it would have been a lot harder to pull off if the trust levels were lower. I don't think you've got to be best friends mm. by any stretch of the matter, you know, otherwise no one would probably ever close the deal. But I will say that the deal, it felt right pretty early on and we were able to negotiate a price and an LOI probably within two or three weeks yeah. and had most of the things done for closing in about 12 weeks. We had a bit of a delay closing, you know, cause we were waiting for SBA backed loans mm-hmm. in the U S we, we have a small business administration. So that, that process takes a bit of time, but yeah, I, I went through a broker. I found a business um, with a seller that was ready to sell. I was ready to buy. Yeah, It came together actually pretty quickly. So the two the two things from that story that I, I think are really interesting is one is I, I think that what it appears to me anyway is that a lot of the accepted approach to search is that kind of high volume top of funnel approach, you know, outreach, research database, five interns, kind of just get the volume really, really high through the top and then work out filters to yeah. try and then get through to the bottom, which which obviously works. But equally, that broker, it's good to hear that there is also the broker method, which can work, which which is something that, I mean, when I bought the businesses that I did, it was predominantly broker-led as well. And I think that there is still enough volume there. And also, I don't think some people get concerned that by the time a business has gotten to a broker and is then being marketed for sale, that the valuations get unreasonable. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that the counter to that is that by the time they've gotten to a broker, they're ready to sell. <laughs> so, which is probably right. a good thing, right? Yes. So, yeah. So I think I think that that's really good. 
I think the other point that you made, which is a point really well made, is that rapport with the vendor. This is an emotional transaction for these guys, right, many times because it's a business that quite often they've built themselves and it's something that they're highly invested in emotionally. So, yeah, you definitely don't want to underestimate the need to build that rapport relatively quickly. And, And equally, if it looks like that rapport is a bit clunky, it's probably going to make it too difficult to do the deal anyway, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, two like real life stories from that. So one on the broker side, you know, and I was kind of insecure because in business school, it sounded like everyone was doing that kind of five intern, you know, they, we call it a proprietary search. You know, you were, you owned all these leads and you were trying to do that. And it does work perhaps different strokes for different folks, mm. but the trade-off is, is quite clear. I think you made it clear, which is okay, you may, perhaps you're going to save a little bit. Maybe you'll save a broker's fee, right? Maybe it's not going to get bid up. But I think you do carry a lot of broken deal risk in the fact that, you know, so these brokers, before they take a business to market, they may be, have talked to these business owners for two, three, four, five years about mm-hmm. selling their business. And they might've pulled it on them, put it on the market and taken it off once or mm-hmm. twice. That's what you don't realize a business broker has gone through, mm-hmm. right? Because they have these, businesses on on the market, they have two or three years of volume behind that, that they're trying to get to market. So yes, you you save, you may save someone pricing, but you carry that broken deal risk. Mm. You go through the brokers. Look, in the US, like a lot of brokers are difficult. Like they add friction, you know, you mm. kind of, you know, agents of any sort, right? Be it real estate or whatever. There's a wide variety of, you know, value add or value subtract there. I, I was lucky. I, I think I, I got a, a pretty good broker, but there's a lot for the broker search. And oh, by the way, if you are big into volume, you could do volume with brokers as well. You can get yeah. the intern and, and the brokers do require a touch as well. Like just because you call one and say, oh yeah, you're on my list. I'll send you something. But most part that, that doesn't mean anything. You need yeah. to follow up with that him or her. Yeah. You need to stay on their good side. And for me, like my broker, probably a year, year and a half later sent me like, he's like, hey, there's this other business in Charlotte. It's kind of related to yours. Would you, you know, and he gave me kind of first look at it. And I was like, yeah, I would love yeah. to buy this business. I'm yeah. way too busy with this one. <laughs> yeah. But I appreciated it because I know obviously there's something in it for him, right? Like he wants to get a deal done, but he thought of me because we had worked at the past. He knew if I, you know, mm. I, could, I at least got one deal done. And it was, it was a good business. I was genuinely interested in and actually ended up passing off to my friend. So quite honestly, like, I stay in touch with them because mm-hmm. as things stabilize in my own business and maybe I have a little bit more bandwidth, we'll do it again. And then on the second point of rapport, while I don't believe you have to be like best, best friends or as good of friends, you know, as me and the seller, we became, you know, we still stay in touch. I was texting with them yesterday. While you don't have to like be best buds, I will say if if there's if the rapport is negative or destructive, mm-hmm. to me, that's a sign. That's yeah. like, yes, this isn't going to this isn't going to work. And so, yeah, I think you want to pay attention. You at least want to be in that kind of, you know, middle ground. I do see some entrepreneurs that are like, I got to get this deal and the company's good and I'm going to fight through it, even though this guy's terrible. And it's like, I don't know, man, even if you can get through it, you're probably accepting a bunch of risk. Mm. Um, Remember, the information is asymmetric, right? Yeah. Well, you're probably also going to get on the other side and you're buying into a business that's been led by someone with a culture that doesn't fit yours. So you're going to probably drop in as the outlier from a cultural perspective in the new organization you've just bought. You know, like if 
if the owner is any indication of the culture of the business you're buying, then surely that's a good lead indicator of whether or not you're going to fit. 100%. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was a search process for me in all is very atypical. And I, you know, I feel very blessed and lucky, but from first search to first offer, I made an offer on one business and that was the business I bought. It was from the day I started to search to the offer was probably two months. And, you know, that happens sometimes. And it's interesting because the other thing that I talk to searchers quite a lot about is sometimes they'll see something early and they'll think, wow, it looks so good, but maybe that's too good. Maybe I should keep searching. And I used the analogy the other day of, of when you go surfing and you're out the back waiting for a wave to come past you can sit out the back waiting for the perfect wave forever, right? But if you paddle out and as soon as you get out the back, there's a great set coming in, that might be the set for you, right? Like you know, That's right. Um, so, <laughs> so you can't just sit out there watching waves roll by, just kind of expecting the next one to be better. So sometimes the first one you see is actually the one for you. And so now that you're, what, yeah, 18, 19 months in, what do you think like if someone was either already in their search and trying to forecast for them what the operational phase might look like? What, what have been kind of the the biggest two or three takeouts or learnings or, or insights that you gained from your first kind of 18, 19 months in the hot seat? Yeah, I'm still trying to put it all together. But so we sell to public schools here in the US and we closed the business March 4th, 2020. And so, COVID, you know, at least in the U.S., that's when <laughs> it was like clear that COVID was a thing. Yeah, the timing was impeccable, right? <laughs> All my buddies were like, laugh, they were laughing. They're like, you left, you left this company that's going public to do this. And, you know, 20 days after closing on the business, on day 20, they closed every school in America. Yeah. So, and then obviously we've seen what unfolded in the world over the last 18 months, I think, you know, obviously my time has has always been under kind of this COVID cloud. And for us, our first 12 months, yeah, our first 12 months were essentially a recession. Mm. You know, whereas by, before I got here, the company was growing 5 6% a year. We were down 25 30% last year. Mm. So for me, like when I got there, I said, you know, I'm just going to just going to observe for six months, just take mm. notes, just go out and calls, visit customers. And, you know, then, by then I'll probably have enough pattern recognition to be able to contribute. Well, that, that went right out the window because the operational climate had changed. So there's that, right. There's the actual, there's the macro environment. I don't think it's that unique, right. Hopefully there's not another COVID, you know, when the searchers listen to this, get their business, but there could be macro events, right. We're not, we're not owed and up a bull market. You could have a recession, you know, there could be conflict, um, you know, physical human conflict somewhere in the world, just anything could happen. So there's that, you know, consider the macro um, environment. That said, I do still believe in the, that first three to six month waiting period where, you know, I say waiting period, it's kind of an observation period. Yeah. Learn, you are the new guy or a new gal on, in, on the scene. Even if you believe you know everything, you, mm-hmm. you may learn one or two things. And at a minimum, at a very minimum, you will earn credibility mm-hmm. by listening, by going on that listening tour and kind of putting yourself through an apprenticeship and hang out with everyone in the company. And because COVID happened, that that apprenticeship for me actually got delayed probably by six or nine months. So I found myself six or nine months later going on a call with my service reps or seeing this part. There was a I was a year in, and there are parts of the business where I was like, you know, my goal was to have is to do every job. Yeah. You know, for a couple of days. 
you know, with the, with the expert, with the yeah. subject matter expert. And I didn't get to do that. You know, we had, we had a team of 20 people. I didn't get to the 20th person until about a year in. Wow. Because you're, you're just doing damage control. You know, you're trying to keep the customers you have, you know, you're watching cash flow, that, that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I would say lesson one, if I could pick my own macro environment, I would have not had COVID and I would, yeah. I, I would have loved to have gone through that, that observation period. That's really interesting, though. The I wonder if also a little bit of your military background helped you in responding to that situation, because it's a bit like you you might have a great plan, but I think there's that saying where no plan survives first contact with the with the enemy or something like that. So it's a bit like That's you, know, right. you had a great plan lined up, and then kind of you jumped out of the plane, <laughs> landed in the new territory, and realized that it was nothing like what you were expecting. So then you need to pivot and change, and that's part of small business, right? To your point, that's exactly right. No plan survives first contact. Do go in with a plan, but I would I would say before you get there, I mean people can debate this, but I don't I think there's value in planning, but I wouldn't I wouldn't spend too many cycles saying, well, I'm gonna yeah. go, I'm gonna go person by person and come up with like a 10 slide plan before mm. you get there, right? Yeah, yeah. I think your plan should be to learn. I probably underappreciated this, which you know, I'm kind of embarrassed to say having led small teams in the military, but you know, business is a fundamentally human endeavor. Mm. So I inherited a team of 15, 20, like I said, I can imagine if it was a bigger team or I had more departments, but those folks on day one are going to, they're going to feel, they're going to have a lot of them, as many emotions as you will, but they may not be the same emotions, right? There's going to be uncertainty, no matter how much you reassure them or you're cool or, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have to go, I believe, person by person and take the initial temperature and then check in with folks and get to know people because you are inheriting that team and that culture that existed before you got there. Maybe hopefully the culture is exactly like you want it and you can just fall right in place and go. I tend to think not, you know, that's probably a lower probability. So you're going to have to do a lot of cultural engineering for lack of a better term. I think it's leadership really. And there's going to be inertia. You know, the company was around 25, 26 years before I got there. And there will, there will be as much inertia as the average tenure of the team, right? So if the team has been together for 25, 26 years, I mean, I will tell you, I'm not a good enough leader to turn that shift, right? Mm-hmm. If it's a lower tenure team, then, you know, you'll be able to slowly turn the ship and eventually your tenure will start to match folks, you know, after being there two, three, four, five years. So that to me has been probably the biggest thing. I mean, we're, we're introducing a new product. We've changed business models. We've done some pretty cool things from a business perspective, but all of that has been much lighter work than that than the people, yeah. the people part of it. Yeah, and it, it's one of those things that I think is really interesting, and and a really important thing for us all to remind ourselves is kind of that's the reason why we're doing it, right? Like the reason why we didn't just yeah. go and get a job at a big corporate or a big consulting firm or whatever is because that's the challenge that we enjoy as entrepreneurs. Like we enjoy the fact that the day after we bought a business, a pandemic hit and <laughs> we've got 15 <laughs> new people to, to to lead in a new direction and, you know, we've got new products yeah. to launch and like that's that's all the really exciting stuff. You know, it's one of those 100%. things 
where, you know, if you really want to see the view from the top, you've got to kind of enjoy the struggle of the climb because right it, it, it's not just a means to an end. Like that journey, like all of those challenges is actually part of the enjoying part to solve, right? And that's that entrepreneurial journey. And that's yeah. where I think it's important that, which is part of, I guess, what I'm trying to do with, with these kind of conversations for the Australian market is get that, all of that reality of the journey out there so we can kind of have that self-selection process where people hear that and they go yeah that's exactly the kind of challenge that i'd like so then when people get into it they can be successful because they're self-selecting into something that's got the challenge that they want to solve yeah i think that's i think that's a a noble goal and that's that'll be good for the entrepreneur right i think what you're doing is is really healthy you're having the entrepreneur go through a very healthy process because It is, you know, there's this book, I think it's behind me and I'm going to actually just reminded me of it and it's called The Messy Middle. Oh yeah. And it's about, it's Scott Belke who founded Behance and now he's one of the top leaders at Adobe, but it's about the middle Mm. because the business of press talks about the beginning, you know, oh, they raised this money and it's going to be cool. They talk about the end, oh, they IPO'd, but it's really all about the middle and that climb. And so people would ask me, how's it going? You know, pandemic, I thought about you. Hmm. all the school closings. And I was like, I'm having a blast. You know, like <laughs> this is, this is as fun as I thought it was. And I think and I never stopped to like get people's responses, but I think some people were like, <laughs> like this guy's lost his mind. But to me, I mean, again, you know, every, all of us would have avoided, you know, a global pandemic, but since I had no control over that, hmm. be it as, be it as it were to be able to pull the levers and navigate through those seas and and now we're, you know, hopefully all of us, all businesses are kind of coming to the other side of it. That's kind of what you sign up for, right? Yeah. Like, and yeah, we, we, we've done a lot. I mean, our, we, of the original team that's there 18, 18, 19 months ago, half of those people are gone mm. and yeah. our team, our team is larger. So yeah. we went through like a, a little bit of a turnover, you know, our, we've increased headcount, but it's mm. different headcount. Mm. Um, and I think you're right. Like if you, if you hear these stories and you are excited by it, or you say, yeah, yeah, that's what I want to do. You know, in, in the middle of the pandemic, we didn't hunker down. We started working on this new product. We started like investing money, which we didn't, you know, really have certainty we would have, you know, like 12 months from now. But if you hear these stories and you relate to it, you identify with it, I would say you're not, you're not weird. You're not hearing things like that is it's, it's resonating for a reason and you, you should self select in and you won't, you know, it'll be tough. It'll be hard work, but you won't, you won't feel out of place, right? You'll know that you're, you're in the right, you know, you're in, you're in the right ballpark. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Well, I mean, I've, I've taken more than enough of your time and I really appreciate it, Aaron, like hearing directly from you on the experience you've had over the last couple of years is, is super valuable. And I'm sure that everyone will appreciate listening to it. And you know, it'd be it'd be great to catch up with you in another twelve months or so, and sort of hear how the yeah. how the business is continuing to track because you'll be a couple of years in there and with some of these new products on the line. So, um, thank you again very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, perfect. No, no problem. I, I enjoyed it. It's always good to kind of reflect and hopefully give back and inspire some more folks to to jump in the pool. Fantastic. I appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more, please jump onto LinkedIn and find the group Search and ETA Australasia. You can also send me a direct message and I'd be keen to connect.